It's not a one country thing, it's an African agenda. This is African Insight with Derek Mazarura. We embody comprehensive assessments of infrastructure projects on the African continent and all issues related to African development, inclusive landmark impulsions for Africa. Welcome to African Insights with Derek Mazarura. This show embodies an overarching approach to infrastructural issues and the African development equation in the abstract. Among other things, the global and domestic economic crisis from the year 2020 into 2021 resulted in fluctuating demand for energy utilities and the irony of it all is Africa's heavily impacted economies depend on the energy sector for resuscitation and kinetic power. With us on the show this hour to help navigate energy and economic prospects is firstly Rolake Akikumbe Filani, the Chief Commercial Officer at Mixta Africa, also an energy and infrastructure sector executive. Secondly, Nicholas Bonifoy, an ASAFO and company partner and an oil and gas and mining project lawyer with an exclusive focus on Africa. Thirdly, Michael Sakala, an energy expert in Zambia and Mr. Mbalati, DNG Energy CEO. Lady and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you, Derek, for having me today. Hi, Derek. Thanks for the opportunity to be part of the radio show. Rulaki, you can get the ball rolling. What do you make of the momentum in Africa's momentous energy markets currently, thus bringing to light prevalent stresses, both domestic and international, and putting into perspective the crippling consequences of COVID-19? How can bottlenecks to capital expenditure on energy sources, fossil fuels to be precise, be obviated? Very, very interesting question. I, I think there's always momentum in Africa's energy sector. And the reason I say so is that there's such a huge gap between what is required in terms of consumption and demand and what is available. Mm -hmm. And we have to look at, at it from the perspectives of the different sources of energy. Of course, we have our traditional fossil fuels, uh, we have our transition fuels like gas, and then we have renewables and alternative energy sources. What we do know today is that despite the huge natural resource endowment on the continent, around 600 million Africans still struggle with electricity and energy access. And I think that is not a good state of things. The biggest gap here we have is a funding gap. Mm -hmm. the, uh, Africa Development Bank estimates an annual funding gap for energy and infrastructure of over $100 billion annually. And you have to think of the fact that that figure is growing annually. So we are also under 10, just under 10 years away from the achievement of SDG 7, Universal Access to Energy. Um, when you look at that funding gap, it, it leaves a lot to be desired. What we're also seeing in terms of global trends is that the global sources of capital to finance 
mm-hmm. energy, particularly traditional energy sources on the continent, are being squeezed. Nicholas, I think I think uh, we are we are facing a very difficult time in the energy sector in Africa at the moment, and um, in in general, but uh, with fossil fuels in particular, um, we 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 have. Um, Face the conjunction of a number of uh, crises. Um, the um, uh, COVID-19 crisis is just uh, a small one mm-hmm. uh, com- compared to the two others. Uh, I think we have a significant um, overproduction in terms of fossil fuels, and that's both for oil and for natural gas. We have a significant a war for market share between all the players, in particular Saudi Arabia and um, uh, the US and Russia and Iran and so on. And this has had dramatic effect on on prices. Uh, As you know, at the moment, um, natural gas is very cheap. Oil, crude oil prices have been very depressed for a while. Mm-hmm. And because of the of the reduction of demand uh, uh, triggered by the COVID nineteen crisis, we've we, yeah, we've been into a, a very difficult pattern in terms of uh, in terms of uh, cash that can be generated. Michael, yeah, you know we are cognizant of the fact that we have the recession due to the COVID nineteen, which have actually run havoc on most of the economies in Africa. So we need to look at uh, the solutions, of course, that to try to improve the situation now. Most countries have a full-blown economic crisis, high inflation rates, businesses have shut down, and investment is uh, been cut down, and most most people have lost their work. So mm-hmm. we need to look at uh, you know the solutions that are going to look at uh, restoring growth and safeguarding livelihoods through the microeconomic stability economic diversification and debt sustainability yeah so this presents uh, an opportunity to look at uh, some of the available funding uh, avenues that will actually deliver the green growth and also create what we can call the green jobs securing the very ecosystems that support the economy yeah you know this compounded also with the climate change we've seen a situation where especially countries like zambia where we're dependent dependent on uh, hydropower generation that we've been uh, more seat in terms of uh, uh, having uh, power availability. I think it's the same case that we're seeing for South Africa, in that uh, South Africa has had uh, to look at, uh, you know, the uh, many severe cases of load shedding that's affecting many people and businesses. Mm-hmm. So we need now what we can call the hydropower generation, uh, non-hydropower uh, no revolution. We just embark on solutions that will obviously focus on uh, uh, looking at alternative sources of uh, energy. Of course, this goes for uh, financing, and we need to look uh, into uh, the kind of financing that is going to help us, uh, you know, uh, start uh, investments in non-hydro power generation to make sure that we are ready and we have uh, options to make us be ready for the uh, climate-related problems that we are facing. Of course, this also look at um, stopping the rapid environmental degradation and uh, uh, in cases of, uh, you know, where some countries depend on the 
the sources of energy from the carbon-driven uh, sources of uh, energy. Yeah, so, of course, we need to look at uh, all these green financing uh, systems that can uh, look at uh, supporting the businesses, the green fund funds mm. that will flow to projects uh, and uh, other parts of, uh, the, of Africa uh, to support the commercial, social and environmental returns. Thank you for that. Nicholas, in a monolithic sense or in the abstract, does Africa have the capacity to mobilize and operationalize resources for transition to a green continent? Please state deterministic factors for economic adaptation with African economies for steady economic recovery to be realizable. I think, Derek, um, Africa definitely has the means, uh, but this is not the bottom line, in, in my opinion. I think what really matters for Africa um, and what really matters for the Western part of the world actually differ. Um, the, the, the Western part of the world has embraced the transition uh, to a greener economy, but this is, this, is, um, this is a luxury that they can afford because they mm. already have enough energy. So they can reach the stage where they can ask themselves, now that we have all the comfort and all the energy that we need, how can we consume this energy in a better way, in a more environmental friendly way? We, are, we have not reached this stage everywhere in Africa just yet. Um, you need to bear in mind that over the next decades, the population of Africa is going to uh, decuplate, is going to increase exponentially. And this is going to require a significant amount of energy that at the moment, Africa doesn't even have. So the bottom line for Africa is not yet about how do I consume in a more environmental friendly way? It's how, do I man how will I manage to feed everyone? How will I manage to provide enough energy to sustain the industrialization, to sustain the growth of population? Mm -hmm. so, and we will need every form of energy to support this industrialization and population growth, whether it is oil, natural gas, coal, green energy, like, like um, uh, wind and solar and biofuels, hydrogen, whatever you want to talk about, Africa will need to bring it all to meet, to meet growing energy demands. That said, there are some places that are already more mature than others, uh, for the energy transition. You can see that states like Morocco, like Kenya, like South Africa have already taken the lead in terms of green or greener projects. But I'm afraid, as you know, as of today, we're talking about more than 60% of the, of the overall African continent who does not have access just to power. We're not at a state where we, we're thinking, how could we consume better? At mm -hmm. the end of the day, those who need to make the efforts are those who have polluted the world for the past hundred years, uh, not, not the Africans just yet. But Africa also has its role to play in this. And if they are uh, commercially driven solutions that can be implemented from the onset, yes, by all means, we should do that. Rulake, 
Yeah, indeed. I, I think Africa does have the local financial resources. You know, for too long, we've depended on our economic and sustainable development and our growth on external actors and stakeholders. I think it's important that we partner and we find external sources of capital. But as we know, capital does come with conditions. And what we've been missing is this huge untapped reserves in local capital markets. Mm -hmm. You know, you probably often hear a lot of people talk about pension funds and the huge pension wealth and resources that we have in the in the African market. One of the reasons that this is really important is actually Africa's dependency ratios are quite low. And what do I mean? If you look at our youth demographic, you have a very young dynamic population. Compare that to the Northern hemisphere around the world where you have mostly an aging population that are more likely in the near to medium term to deplete their pension assets much quicker by virtue of the age demographic. Here we have Africa, we have a thriving private sector in local markets. We have a pension pot that has been built uh, and is accumulating, but is not being sufficiently deployed into infrastructure. Mm -hmm. If I look like countries like Nigeria alone, $25 billion in pension assets and ever growing pots, by the way, uh, when you look across border around the continent, we're looking at well over $150 billion in pension assets across Africa. And a lot of that is lying fallow and it's not being adequately deployed. Um, so I think there's a real need for the private and public sector to work together to unlock those channels. The second part of the financial resources is tied to general economic growth. One of the unfortunate consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic is that, you know, we've seen the slowdown in growth. GDP projections for many countries have been impacted, and that has then spilled over into private sector development and prosperity, which has also then impact, impacted incomes and general wealth creation. So I think we're seeing more of that. But what we what I think we need is the public sector to help to de-risk investments. And what do I mean? The public sector and governments and multilateral institutions backed by strong African sovereigns who can help to guarantee or underwrite the risk for mm -hmm. foreign investors or other African investors who might want to put money into local projects on the continent. We also need public finance to help unlock private finance. And so the guarantee structures, the credit enhancement structures for some of these projects are things that we need to see more. And there've been some very great examples of how that has worked effectively on the continent. You know, one example is one of the major power projects we have here in Nigeria is the Azura IPP project. And one of it's it's a model and a sort of a poster child for public private sector collaboration in the African energy space, because what uh, the World Bank was able to do with the Nigerian government was to provide a credit enhancement mm. for that deal that was financed by the private sector, uh, and that project is up and running. Rulake, to avoid the tail spinning of landmark African energy markets and transport sector. In a case of intensified global decarbonization of the transport sector, what effective solutions can key stakeholders and decision makers embrace? Do you concur with the possibility of Africa ending up with clunker combustion engine vehicles from Europe 
and how can such evils if overlooked impede recovery i think for me one of the biggest uh, game changers for africa's energy transition is going to be transportation um, one of the future trends or coming trends I think we'll see is a move towards either natural gas vehicles, low sulfur fossil fuel vehicles, and possibly eventually electric vehicles. I think transportation is actually going to be the biggest game changer. Uh, because of the global emissions push, um, we're seeing much more policy initiatives emerging in African transportation to reduce energy. Uh, hugely environmentally damaging fossil fuel emissions from vehicles and transportation systems on the on the continent. Mm. Um, one of the key limiting factors here is technological adaptation. And what do I mean? So, you know, today in Africa, we have a vehicle fleet officially of between, let's say, um, 50 million, right? A vehicle fleet, official vehicle fleet of, say, 50 million. And if you want to legislate um, in an economy, a transportation economy of that size, one of the things that you have to think about is first of all, how you get local actors to adhere to regulations around emissions and the types of fuel they use in cars. That's number one. Number two is if you then say, you know what, we have these fossil fuels, we can use them, we can legislate around the content of sulfur or the hugely polluting content in that. We now want to move to a state where we actually adapt some of these vehicles in such a way that they can use more environmentally friendly energy sources or fuel sources. The question is the cost of that adaptation. So one of the things that we need to see is more private sector initiatives to help with that adaptation. Because the biggest thing with the energy transition, in my view, is beyond funding, mm. is the ability of local markets to quickly adapt to either changing consumer preferences or new lifestyles. Nicholas? I think it is interesting that your question focuses on transport, uh, and in particular on electric, electric vehicles, because... Um, it's one of the, of the question marks that I have at the moment in terms of transition. Um, we are, we are uh, fighting the combustion engine um, as the devil, uh, but because of you know, the, the significant amount of emissions, are, are we actually certain that with electric vehicles at the moment, we are actually going to reduce emissions? Mm. Um, if, if you take into account that um, aside from the engine by itself and the way it is powered, the, 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 the emissions to produce, the emissions generated to produce an electric vehicle versus uh, a combustion engine vehicle is, are exactly the same. Now, um, if, you, if you replace the combustion engine with an electric engine, Yes, of course, with the, with the electric engine, when you drive it, you do not emit any emissions. But in order to reach there, you reach that point, you need to uh, produce uh, cobalt and lithium and all of those very nice 
minerals coming, most of them coming from Africa. Is that really environmental friendly? That's a big question mark. Mm. And then um, for the largest electric vehicle market, like in China at the moment, uh, 60%, if not 70% of the energy produced in China is produced based on coal. So you are, you're actually filling up your batteries with, um, with a power generated from coal, which is, again, heavily uh, carbon emission uh, intense. So are we really going to reduce emissions like this? Rolake, describe how Africa can leverage research and development initiatives to augment capacity building for environmentally friendly methodology for energy production. Can the adoption of and adaptation to frontier technologies combat the current and future energy insecurities? Yeah, very, very good question. A bit complex, but I'll try and break it down a bit. So one of the major things that has driven the growth and I guess slowly emerging industrialization on the continent has been the role of technology. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that is why for the alternative energy space, we often refer it to as clean energy technologies, because, you know, by virtue of that description, it has the ability to help us leapfrog. It also is disruptive to incumbent systems or incumbent industries. And it's usually quite cost competitive. Technology helps us to bring down costs. But one of the consequences of technology on, on intended consequences of technology is that it's reshaping the future of work. So when it comes to Africa as a continent, we have to look at it in three dimensions. What do, does our economy, each individual economy need? From an energy perspective, we look at the residential landscape, that is people's houses, their living conditions. So what energy technology can be adapted for those markets. Mm -hmm. Then for the second level, we have the commercial energy uh, consumption, and then we have large-scale industrial consumption. And so what we need to do is start to create hubs of research and innovation that study the specific needs of African markets and African consumers. And there's a lot we can do through our tertiary institutions and even starting from our secondary institutions in education. We're seeing a lot more private sector entities run competitions, acceleration programs or innovation programs where young people are coming together to trial out new types of alternative energy technologies. And it's important to do this fast and to do this quick. You know, we haven't traditionally been seen as a continent that uh, grooms or incubates businesses that invest heavily in R&D, research and development. But one of the trends I'm seeing in Sub-Saharan Africa is a lot of traditional energy companies are now creating R&D departments mm -hmm. within their companies so that they can keep ahead of these trends and they're investing more in that. One of the things that will drive that, of course, Derek, I'm sure you'll agree, is education. Yes. And encouraging more young people to take on STEM education, particularly women, because I think, for instance, the energy space is something that has the ability to transform the economic destinies of Africa's female population. And, and part of the challenge, the final thing I will say to this is that, you know, when you look at the competing economic priorities of African governments, you know, there are needs that need to be met today. 
right? You need to invest in your infrastructure, in your school, in agriculture, in food chains and food supply. But the ability for us to sustain those systems will depend on the innovation and the engine room behind that. And we need to constantly keep innovating. But I'm very positive that the energy sector is one of those that has caught on to this idea Mm -hmm. and hopefully will help drive that conversation forward. Nicholas? We need to produce energy full blast in order to sustain uh, the demand in, in Africa. That said, that doesn't mean that we should overlook uh, more environmental friendly methodology, but that means that this is not the main concern at this stage. That's it. There are plenty of opportunities in Africa mm-hmm. with a lot of uh, space, with a lot of light, with a lot of sun, with a lot of wind, where we can develop more environmental friendly methodology assuming they can, be, they can be developed from a commercial perspective. Nicholas, with mainstream international financial markets undergoing fatigue, how can financial resources be domestically attained so as to galvanize Africa energy recovery? Any ventures to shield investors in energy from external shocks? I think it's because the, the, the financial markets at the moment and the way investors understand investments in the world in general, but in Africa in particular, is totally upside down. Mm. Um, we need to reverse the way companies uh, design commercial projects and invest in Africa. At the moment, you have more than 1.5 trillion uh, uh, US dollars of dry powder, which means money that has been already raised, but that is unable to be invested anywhere. And the reason for that is because the thresholds for investment uh, for any investor, funds, banks, uh, sponsors, and so on, has become so high, has become so difficult to invest that a lot of companies are able to raise, but they're never able to invest this money anywhere. And uh, the recent push for ESG standards and so on has only made it worse. Mm. So the companies raise millions of dollars to invest in Africa, and they de- and and they define a never-ending list of conditions for those investments to be made. Rulake, it sounds like something that's quite simple to do, but it will surprise you that very many African countries have not created the environment for pension fund and asset managers to invest in infrastructure because they see it as high risk. But pension funds by very nature are long-term investments that you put away. And so long as they're trustworthy pension fund managers, I think infrastructure requires long-term. So we're talking about projects that need 10 or 15 year or 20 year money. Mm. which your typical local commercial bank may not have the capacity to give. Let's face it, local commercial banks in Africa are doing fantastically well. But I think if you look at the size of their balance sheets, sometimes they are limited in the types of projects they can fund and for how long they can fund it. Um, That is why they often have to partner with some of the international regional players and, and the big DFIs like Africa Development Bank or the World Bank. But I think the policy, you know, parliaments and and legislators need to be looking at passing policies that allow pension funds to invest. The second thing we need to be doing is if we look at the wealth we generate from fossil fuels today, right? 
it is tremendous. And there was a time in which you had, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten African countries that had created sovereign wealth funds mm-hmm. or had created um, national investment authorities that had been the vehicle for saving and investing wealth from natural resources, traditional fossil fuels. Either you invest for a rainy day or you invest for posterity, for future generations. We need to revisit some of those structures, especially now. Because the reality is, in as much as we talk of wanting a balanced world mix, a time will come when the plug will essentially be pulled on anybody wanting to invest in fossil fuels. We're going to take a quick break. And after the break, energy and regional trade, the oil and gas industry and climate change, food security and poverty as concerns energy, sectorial combinations and public-private partnerships join us after the break this is african insight on channel africa dstv 802 join me derek mazarura as we journey through the structure beneath the structure northeast west south and central africa to find the project the meaning with the people for the people Every Wednesday mornings at 8, regional, national, sub-national. From Morocco's North Africa power transmission corridor to the eco-villages in Togo. Among many, all here on African Insight, Channel Africa. Bringing you the African perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're talking Road to Recovery for African energy markets and African economies. In terms of policy implementation and compliance, what role can a well-formulated regulatory framework establish to ensure transparent domestic trade, specifically by dint of the African continental free trade area, and where do taxation and custom utilities need to focus in regional trade to reinforce cooperation? Rolage? Yeah, great question, Derek. If you look at FDI trends in the last five years compared to the previous five years of the last decade, if you look at what has happened to FDI mm-hmm. in some of these big African economies, you know, we've struggled. We need more policy continuity. We can't take away the fact that investors do weight political risk heavily. Nobody wants to invest in an environment where they're not sure that if somebody doesn't get, you know, unelected or lose an election, that the government or the country won't take a U-turn on oil sector policy or mining sector policy or the way it, it does the power sector bids, you know. But then taking that a step further, I think one of the things I'm really, really optimistic about is the impact of the African continental free trade area agreement and how it's going to be a game changer mm-hmm. for the continent, creating this large one billion strong market for potential Africa's potential trade partners. So what we need to see with that, for instance, and that is a classic example, Africa has already had many regional economic blocks and trading blocks that have been going on for years, SADC, COMESA, the EAC, ECOWAS, WAEMU, CIMAC, you know, we have a plethora um, EGAD in, in, in the Horn of Africa. So 
one of the challenges with seeing many of the objectives of those trading blocks happen is the cascading down at national level. So I always say that we can have a policy in principle if African governments don't own the process mm. and take ownership and lead the process within their countries and then ensure that all the relevant stakeholders in each country understand what needs to be done in, in terms of implementation, then those Pan-African agreements are not going to get up so get us so far. Mr. Mbalati, identify areas of need in the oil and gas industries that could aid recovery and sustain growth. Is climate change a matter of consequence to remaking African economies? And how can Africa balance between focus on attaining climate neutrality and rejuvenating its economies through reformed, extractive and manufacturing processes? Africa today is a teenager. You're sitting with a population that has an average of 19 years. Yes. And you also live in a world economy that is uh, technologically fast-paced, that is looking for improving human life. And you also sit with a continent that has a high base of mineral resources, arable land, mm -hmm. and a great sun. Yes, if you take those factors into consideration, you then come up with a scenario where you need to start beneficiating the resources that Africa has, putting the youth into good use in terms of applying modern technologies into then providing energy which is clean, reliable, and efficient in order to achieve that growth. So let's look at the petroleum sector, for example, in terms of producing high-value products uh, from oil and gas, where you could be producing things like petrochemicals mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, having high-value uh, ingredients. But how do we live in the context of climate change to make sure that we don't make things worse? And at the same time, you've got this phenomenal resource that has been demonized as something that uh, we cannot use. The irony of it right now is that you and I are engaging uh, using fossil, fossil fuel-based technologies in mm -hmm. order to advance the cause of humanity. All things constant explain how sustainable energy infrastructure can budget food security and make a dent in poverty eradication which energy form can Africa look to for baseload power and why? Africa is well endowed with water. It's well endowed with arable, uh, arable land. Why don't we continue in the progression of our hydro schemes in terms of making sure that we've got energy or baseload energy coming from hydropower, right? Mm -hmm. so that is one potential, one potential source of baseload energy that can augment farming based on how you channel water. However, someone can also come up with an argument of saying that, well, climate change is causing uh, a shift in terms of water patterns, river flows. Well, agreed. And if that is the case, then you've got things like uh, natural gas that can play a fundamental role in conjunction with other cleaner technologies such as carbon capture, uh, in terms of making sure that uh, you produce based on power. However, don't discount things like nuclear, 
which have a very long life and uh, that can ensure that there is sustainability. With things like nuclear, there come other benefits of technological advancements. I mean, mm -hmm. think about it today, if you did not have nuclear, I don't think that you would have what we call x-ray. And I don't think that the medical sciences in that, in that field would have advanced and advanced your health or health knowledge as we know it today. Nicholas? There's one uh, streaming answer, which is natural gas. Mm -hmm. uh, natural gas has the power to generate the energy, the baseload power, as you refer to in your question, that Africa needs. See, um, international oil companies or gas companies coming to Africa are mainly interested in large quantities of natural gas, which they can liquefy to export to foreign markets. Mr. Mbalati, to curtail socioeconomic challenges, in what ways can the soaring youth populations be assimilated into energy dynamics and how are sectorial combinations and enabler of optimized growth and economic recovery please largely refer to PPPs and ICT intimate interactions with key sectors like agriculture? The problem that we have today is not an opportunity it's an it's not an opportunity problem it is a mindset problem mm. what have we done to empower our youth what have we done to ensure that our youth think in the right way if you look at the the the, the, the profile of african politics we tell our youth that don't worry, we are going to do it for you, rather than telling our youth to say that, stand on our shoulders and show us what we can do better in terms of improving the circumstances that we have based on the knowledge and empowerment that we have given you. Mm. If we empower our youth to think right, create the environment of our youth to thrive, I believe a lot of these problems will be solving themselves out. Nicholas? I think, I think we should involve um, all of the youth population into the generation of energy mm -hmm. in, all, in all their forms. And it, it, uh, when I say energy, it, it's also agriculture, it's also food, is, is using the African SMEs, which are the, the heart of many African economies, are uh, using African energy, African uh, human resources for the, for the production of, of uh, African energy for the benefits of African economies, not to be exported, uh, not to be exported abroad. And this is not an anti-international oil company or gas company discussion. This is just because we need this energy to reach the African market, not necessarily to be liquefied or to be exported abroad, to be sold, to be sold abroad. Because in the, in the meantime, we have a massive power issue. I, mean, mm -hmm. I, I always hate to visit um, places like Nigeria, where more than 60% of people uh, do not have access to power. You see young children doing homework in the street because they have no power at home. And you can't help but to think, Come on, give me a second. Isn't this one of the largest producers of oil and gas in Africa? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for affording us your perspectives.
Yeah, extremely welcome. It was a great conversation. Thanks a lot, Derek. We have come to the end of our show. At some point, a resolute juncture must be reached. For absolute recovery to be realized in your country, it will not take one man or one initiative, but certainly the first step to move Africa forward. The energy sector in Africa would be void without joint efforts among its people. You and me are an energy source made to light up Africa. Join me again next week, same time, as we explore the structure beneath the structure right here on African Insights. My name is Derek Manzarula and it's bye for now.